Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. They got something finished. Um, <laughs> We, we started this tour in Chicago and in that Arctic storm, and I was in Iowa alone after that, um, working at a university. I thought, how do people live in 40 below? I just want to wear Daisy Dukes and lay on the porch and smoke. But, um, I'm going to read a piece about the making of a piece, and this piece was called Deliverance. Um, I just want to say, in, in the ways that I've made work, um, previous to that, I always made scenes in nightclubs, like Club Fog, Cinematic, um, also some New York clubs, which I would develop the work making a decent club fee. I, knew, I didn't understand how to go through the art system. So um, I was commissioned by the ICA London to make Deliverance, and I thought maybe... I've been putting these pie pieces together one at a time, like what if I actually could form the whole contour of a piece and work on it? And I'd been um, working with the same, pretty much eight people through all the 90s. So in 95, we showed this um, third part of the torture trilogy called Deliverance at the ICA in London and and a few places after that. Um, If you remember, 1996 also is kind of a, a pivotal a pivotal year because the um, three-therapy HIV cocktail came out that year, but the weariness just before that, after you know going into the second decade of it, was intense. Um, and I think I'm not... I guess I'm a, a kind of specific kind of activist, I guess. I just tell about it. I, I have um, questions that bother me when something big is going on rather rather than a more um, pro-political stance. So here, here's my thoughts about work in general. Nothing stays pure. Bloating up to the moment of redemption, it self-destructs, decomposes, or becomes a god-awful parody. I'm talking about the desperation for healing in the time of AIDS. In this weary but philosophical state of mind, I find myself writing a piece called Deliverance. Deliverance is the fulfillment of epiphany. It's the day spoken of by prophets. Moses' promised land. The day of freedom from the suffering for that sorry-ass son of a bitch, Job. Or it's an eagerly awaited day, like the second coming. There's also the movie Deliverance, where while Snaggletooth hillbillies rape a straight man, played by Ned Beatty, they tell him to squeal like a pig. He is ensaved, or at least vindicated, by the arrow of either Burt Reynolds or John Voight. The point is that the violation of the asshole itself, sodomy, is the root of so many fears. 
In my deliverance, this fear is to overcome with beauty and humor. The asshole produces hidden treasures that wrap around the three-tier set. It receives and expels enemas into glass jars full of glitter stars swirling in the muck. It takes a double-headed dildo ride with a friend while reading a story about reinfection. This life sex isn't very sexy. It's fighting the polarity that is so sharp of what my friend the late Corey Roberts Ali called the good girls versus the nasty girls. In my performance material, I'm guilty of enhancing my history, situation, and surroundings into a perfectly depicted apocalypse, or at least a more visual atrocity. I do this out of disappointment, for they're not really being hellfire and brimstone, for my Aunt Vina not, not really bearing the second coming of Christ, as was prophesied. I have a messianic martyr complex. It's a stretch to call the delusions of fanatical religion glamorous. Not to say that living most of my adult life through a time of AIDS has been disappointing as far as high drama goes. It's taken very little work for me to parallel my experiences with the bejeweled doomsday prophecies from the Book of Revelations. Sometimes I question the meaning of my performance work. I'm not sure what the reasons are to keep doing. I know I am testifying, still through the same lens, but with a different message. Why the fucking bloodbath? The shit? The vomit? All performed on a well-lit stage so that, while stylized, no details will be missed. I want a public to bear witness. Perhaps they judge me as damaged, but who isn't? I want it to be heard that I was raised in the realm of God, channel spirits in an unchristian-like manner, and walked away daring to be a mystical atheist. In my destruction, I barely survived drug addiction, then recovered and became innocent, like an injured child, then with finesse, aggressively present. My schooling after the Armageddon of childhood was in the punk scene, drug experimentation and addiction, death rock, and the psychoneural revelations of industrial culture. As a teen, literature saved my life. I read Genet and Smith and Geed and Sard and Camus and Burroughs with a hunger. Later, I read Warnerovich and Cooper and Jarman. I adored Pasolini and Fassbender. I was trying to find something worthy to believe in or, or more like see a precedent that I could educate myself into an acceptable reality. It was not going to be pretty, but it, I had already laid it out for me. I had to know this history and feel it. It finally came down to finding living people I could relate to and new obsessions. Body piercing became my kink. Tattoos saved my life. Modern primitives became a new religion, which quickly turned into a clown show. <laughs> Deliverance premiered in December 1995 and was the third major performance piece I made with the company. It completed what became called the Torture Trilogy. The first two performances in the trilogy, Martyrs and Saints, 92-93, and Four Scenes in a Harsh Life, 93-96, were very different, but they overlapped in theme and structure. Martyrs and Saints is a meditation fueled by the rage and grief I felt in the early 90s, tackling the dark ambience created by the AIDS catastrophe and tying it into my inheritance, a grandiose martyr complex which all my Jesus Freak family could afford to leave me with. <laughs> it was compiled a short vignette. My reaction over the death of David Warnerovich inspired the first scene, in a nurse's penance. Can I skip up? In making deliverance, I started at a difficult point 
I was conflicted with my belief system and not sure I could still call myself an atheist. After nine years of seropositivity, which is now, <laughs> I was detested in 85 and I'm still here. I was still mortified by the idea of dying from an ugly AIDS-related illness adding to the pile. Even today, I remain aloof but weary and can hear the clock ticking. Now I'm just dying of old age. Um, I'm hyper aware that I'm dying. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't help that no one gets out alive. And worse, I run on guilt. Guilty because I don't take care of my health. Frantic because I haven't realized all my goals. And find myself further and further from being able to accept love in my life. In my frenzy to be alive and heard, I'm afraid I'm not really experiencing my life. It isn't... I went from that franticness to being really lazy and hedonistic, so whatever. It's not my intention to find God through deliverance or by any other means. It started as both a challenge and a search for mythological context to the darkness. In deliverance, Divinity Fudge's character, who happens to be under the tree, and the actions follow trickster mythologies. And there is a continual polarization of filth and glitz, exact movements in the dirt, strings of pearls and shit, cleansing rinses and smelly herbs, Santeria queens and penitents, ambiguities, castrated sinner or holy eunuch, reinfection or sexual freedom. Does anyone present as what it means? Krishna orange becomes fake tan muscle marys. Death, autopsy, burial. Deliverance was also the first piece developed and performed using a hypnotist to instruct the company in lear learning text, to create a spacing, and to move in an unnatural dreamwalker pace. Deliverance, more so than four scenes, is about AIDS, and beyond that, the Im impulse to experience the, the miraculous. Our ability to bend perception takes place on a psychic plane, namely the stage. Deliverance has taken the apocalypse by the reins and is, and is riding it into the ground. And I, I'll read the text tonight, which um, I don't think I wrote down what, what verse of the Bible it comes from. Um, but there's a, there's a part about the eunuchs in the Old Testament, and then there's a Yom Kippur prayer that I personalize. So in divinity's deep voice, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Let not the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord to the eunuchs, I will give them an everlasting name, which shall never perish. I have trespassed, I have dealt treacherously, I have robbed, I have spoken slander, I have acted perversely, and I have wrought wickedness. I have been presumptuous, I have done violence, I have framed lies, I have counseled evil, and I have spoken falsely. I have scoffed, I have revolted, I have provoked, I have rebelled. I have committed iniquity, I have transgressed, I have oppressed, I have been obstinate. I have done wickedly, I have corrupted, I have, been, I have committed abomination, I have gone astray, and I have led others astray. So just take all the guilt on <laughs> and wear it. Um, that's all I'm going to read today. Um, I'm giving a lecture at MOCA on Thursday night, and then on March 13th, performing Sebastiani with um, performers John John and Sage Charles at the Hammer Museum. So I have a, a list of things coming up. Give me some hard questions. Give me some hard questions. <laughs> yeah. Is that a Celtic um, design? 
I think it's a Tibetan mystic knot, but oh, they, they have their family and <laughs> design. Yeah. Did Cynthia do your uh, plaster caster? No, I left one day too quick before the plaster caster caught me. <laughs> I got the t-shirt and ran. <laughs> but it was a fantastic meeting here finally. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Um, I saw your genius cradle Red yeah. Um, so I saw you there. I also saw it at the Sweeney, I think in Riverside. Oh, yeah. Later on, and it was years ago, so you probably don't remember, but I also helped you set up the stage at the Sweeney. Yeah. <laughs> She's clocking me for my sweetie honey. went to dinner later on in that night, but with you and Jennifer Doyle and some other people. Um, but one thing that really struck me um, after seeing that same performance, kind of in three different ways, the red cat, I, I think I sat cross-legged on the floor, and then I said that we had a little thing with crystals or something. I remember beads for the Judas Cradle, and I remember it, it took a long time with me and another student. Oh, the set, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering, um, you were your energy and your face were also very different in each space. Um, and then even later on when I met you that night, you were so warm <laughs> and even now. And I remember being so struck that, that you were you were able to, you had, I mean, your energy was so, um, it was probably the most powerful change I've ever seen anybody um, give. Um, just one minute you were sort of serene, and another you you were like Martin, another one you were just warm. You were just like a regular guy. Well, so that's what I have to manage, though. The, the, the sort of um, you know, if I the harder the performance, the higher it goes. It's it's hard to find your way back because it's not real. Right. <laughs> you can't function in that blasting it out state. So. It's you know it's it's really unpredictable for me whether I want to be crabby and want to be alone or if I turn into like an attention whore and have to be in the party like hey I'm pretty social afterwards you see but sometimes I'm I'm dark. Do you do anything though to like now when you see a space? I mean, do you go in through any kind of um, process or because I think that one of the Sweeney was a no crap. In a strange windowy room, yeah. Yeah, so I was just wondering, like, your process when you see a brand new space and maybe realize, like, oh, crap, my equipment is too big for this. Or oh. It's too, you know what I mean? The, well, that's the, I'm adaptable. Like, I, I never choose a white gallery, but then you end up with them. So I've learned, I've learned to perform in the middle of the room. Right. This sort of... The white gallery comes from the hygiene gallery at the turn of century in Cologne. Like, what a weird thing to become the de facto art room, this most sterile <laughs> idea of a backdrop. So I, I like, you know, it, it depends on the equipment. I, I prefer a black box or I prefer devastating architecture somewhere it's site-specific and am I even starting to work in outdoor landscapes. So. I, I would like to do that. But, yeah, I don't make plays where everything fits in one room. I think the, the Judas Cradle was more of an exception to that, what size pieces were needed. 
and also a different way of working, a, a way that I would never work, like the way dancers and singers work. I'm not a songbird. I don't stretch every day. I'm not Tina Turner. I don't chant before I <laughs> go on. I have these rituals of being sick to my stomach. And I think if I don't take it to that level, that I don't care anymore. So I'm like locked into that. It's funny. It's like the, the process is to turn it on, but it just turns on. Hmm. Um, you know, last week we had uh, the writer Edmund White here, who mm-hmm. in his 40s took off to Paris. And so here you, in your 40s, you took off to London. You know, and I was curious to know um, do you think there's sort of some sort of. Because he, he had founded the Game as Health Crisis and AIDS had been a bit of part of that. You know, what was your, de- your decision around, around leaving and, and moving elsewhere? After Los Angeles had been your home for a long yeah, time. Yeah, but I. I um... I just kind of felt like I had a L.A., New York, London reality through the 90s anyway. So it wasn't abstract, but it was that damn thing called love. (laughs) I I was proudly a flyer (laughs) and not a walker, so... Is, is, is the love still going on? Not that one. But I, <laughs> 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 do you like to say to someone, do things for love? I mean, when you, is that wise is that mm-hmm. advice? Do things for love? Love is the law. All right. The only time that life doesn't work for me is when I stop believing in love because I'm hurt and I'm reacting. You know, all the other shadows, details. Because I don't have spirit if I don't have love. I'm not um, women who love too much, like addicted to love in bad situations. I like being alone as well in between, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I did, I I interviewed Edmund White probably in the late 90s for, for, I used to have a column for in Honcho magazine. And so my title was Edmund White is a Ranch Queen. I can see that. He likes to talk about dirty things, but uh, you know, also he, like, like many people, were caught up, caught up in this this polarity and age, which I think, ha- you know, kind of led to, in my opinion, people like everyone needing to have their own fucking baby and all of these sort of trends. Like these were the good girls, who were like family people, <laughs> and it split like that. So I mean, I was actually and having, you know, started these key organizations in New York to still throw out a few raunchy quotes was political mm-hmm. and, and those, those aspects of when there's a polemic and a revelation interest me a lot do you think the gay community has lost its edge? Oh, that was a long time ago <laughs> That's, it became too organized <laughs> you know it's, a, it's um, I, there's no there's no I feel like there's not enough thinking going on about philosophy about where we're at mm-hmm. and, and instead of all the the peripheral things. Um, I think some of them are raised and the questions are raised, they're not answered in Lee Edelman's book, um, No Future, Queer Theory and Death Drive, about actually taking a stand as a people who don't believe in reproductive futurity. So who are we then? You know, if the planet's buckling, why should I recycle? The buck stops here. <laughs> I, I didn't lose any seed along the way. You know, it's just me. So, you know, rather... That's the way I negotiate my nihilism, I guess. Um, but, you know, going further and not being nihilistic, but actually seeing that as a, a powerful position 
not to have to play these traditional roles and not be quiet about it and not be invisible, then what, then what are we? And, and how do you bring thinking forward from there? I, I think that's kind of a starting point. I know that, you know, there was backlash from that point of um, Jose Munoz and um, Judith Halberstam's utopian ideas, but I try to be anti-utopian because I'm utopian. <laughs> you have to make the effort, otherwise you're in a bubble. Um, so what's next for you as an artist? What, what, what's evolving? Um, well, there's a piece I showed here last summer at the beginning of called Messianic Remains, and I'm going into further development on that. Um, I'm also collaborating with um, this young artist here, John John, and with a drummer named Sage on Sebastiani, so we'll continue that. John? That's John John. Hello. And um, I'm still working on my quietest piece, which is um, a 30-person automatic writing machine. So I chop up... Um, my Pentecostal memoirs into just one paragraph as, and it's also under hypnosis at time the whole time. So 16 people write four stories and then go to an unhinged section. Six typewriters, manual typewriters, start typing what they can discern from the scribble, and then it goes through this kind of Burroughs-Geisen technique of making an algorithm on the spot of the new text, and then it's read back by. And in New York, little Annie did the vocals on that. It was, it was fantastic. So that's um, usually responds to architecture. So that New York one was in a very small gallery, but usually it's in, in a grand hall. Just roll out the paper. <laughs> um, but this was, in a way, I, I'm very, you know, one of the things I'm the most interested in in art expression is an esoteric realm and how, how to physicalize it or write about it or make it in a, you know, I'm from here. You have to be a little anti-New Age. You get <laughs> swallowed up at it. But how do you bring that kind of energy to life where collective unconscious forms? So that's another avenue. Who are some of the emerging artists that you're looking at who you think are? Um, well, this one who, who's come here, um, Martin O'Brien is quite fantastic, and he's him. Um, in his early 20s, he has cystic fibrosis, and I was mentoring him in a project, and I thought, of course, his idol is Bob Flanagan, was Bob Flanagan, so I introduced him to Sherry Rose, who's here in, in her 70s and still making work, so they started collaborating. So I thought this kind of transgenerational dialogue with these issues of um, sickness and duration and, and the pain-pleasure principle within that was is an interesting one. Um, I have a long list of people about. Um, any other questions? Once, twice, yes. Um, you, you mentioned in your work that you used hypnosis. At, at what point, uh, or at what age did you did you discover hypnosis, and, and why did you start using hypnosis actually in your work? Um. I think I saw the, rela the relationship of hypnosis to trance state and, and meditation. I came out of a Pentecostal house, but it was a lot like a, things that the spiritualist church practice. So we did scrying with a crystal ball and, and automatic writing. And, you know, and going back to writing project, it's an interesting thing where the spiritualist church of England and the spiritualist church of the U.S. were sisters, and then it kind of f fell out of favor in the U.S., but 
continued in the UK. And this is at the same exact time Andre Breton wrote an automatic no novel. So it's just sort of this return to, to the unconscious or automatism as, as a way of moving through the blocks of the time we're in and making work. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, um, Werner Herzog's Heart of Glass is an inspiring sort of piece of evidence of a, of a project made under hypnosis. Have you seen that? And then Possession as well, right, with uh, Sam Neill. Yeah. Supposedly in hypnotic states, which also made them jerk in certain motions. It, it's an interesting tool, especially if you work with um, not, you know, non-performer performers to so not be afraid of learning text, learning choreography. It's like a fast track through a lot of things, but mostly like this, this sort of synchronized speed and vibration. Everything, the intention links up, kind of. So that, and so people that are actually involved in your work. Um, no, we do it in a workshop for three days, so they're humming by the time it's a performance. <laughs> it's just about digging a groove, and if you do it as a practice, like if you do it five times, it gets deeper and faster if you're with a good hypnotist. And, and oddly, hypnotherapists aren't so great. Hypnotists, like some line between a stage hypnotist and someone who does therapy that's stronger for my purposes. Whereas the ones who help you quit smoking, it's just all, you're in the chair. You know, you feel relaxed, but it's, you know, it's not dynamic in a way. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.